Hospitality is our name. The way we make people feel is why people will either love this restaurant or not. And I expect you to lead with generosity. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Studio Podcast. This is part two of our conversation with restaurateur Danny Meyer. And in this episode, Danny shares with us about enlightened hospitality and the importance of how you make your customers feel. You can hear part one of this conversation in the episode listings of the podcast or watch the full episode on our YouTube channel at The Entrepreneur's Studio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and see the show notes for links to resources mentioned in this episode. Well, we've been talking quite a lot about your story, your origin story, how the framework and the fabric of your life was really brought together in order to be an entrepreneur. And you just kind of got to this place where Union Square Cafe has got some attention, right? And bring us back up to how Union Square Cafe grew up. Yeah. So Union Square Cafe, the, the goal for me was to create a restaurant that if only it existed would be my favorite restaurant anywhere. And I had spent my whole life, you know, really studying for that moment, Mm. eating out, always spent a lot of time traveling by myself. And I knew what it felt like to be a solo diner. And if you're a solo diner, you can truly tell if a place has hospitality because more places than not look down their nose at you as if you're lost revenue. And Mm -hmm. uh, so when I would go to a place and they really made me feel welcome as a solo diner, I was taking something from that place and I was keeping notes all over the place. Union Square Cafe became an amalgam of all of my favorite ways to dine. And it turned out that, that through my own personal travels, what I liked more than anything were the trattorias in Rome, the bistros in France, and the new breed of bar and grill from San Francisco in Mm -hmm. Berkeley. Yeah. And what all of those three things had in common was a lack of pretension, simplicity, a focus on ingredients, and a sense of welcome. And that's what I wanted to have. It was, and so Union Square Cafe, I'll I'll never forget, I had a, a conversation, the same uncle that convinced me not to be a lawyer and instead to get into the restaurant business persuaded me to meet uh, the guy who was in charge of food and beverage for the Harvard Club in New York City. Wow. And this guy definitely looked down his nose at me and he said, so what kind of a restaurant are you planning to open anyway? And I I think I said, eclectic. And he said, what? Let me just tell you something right now. When New Yorkers go out to eat, they either want Chinese, Italian, French, pizza, but they don't want eclectic. It'll never work. And it scared the crap out of me. Oh, wow. But I went with my gut. Yeah. And and I had this menu that had some of the favorite dishes that I'd learned to cook in Rome, Milan, Bordeaux. Some of the dishes that I'd eaten in, in San Francisco and loved, or ideas that I'd gotten. And it was truly all over the map. We had, you know, pasta. We had confit de canard. We had grilled marinated filet mignon of tuna, marinated with soy, ginger, lemon, and garlic. You know, stuff that you would never see together on a menu. Yeah. But that's what I wanted to do. And and more than anything, I wanted it to be a place of welcome that treated people really, really well. Well, think about how true his statement was. 
and at the same time, what the future holds. Because you look at New York today, there are aspects of that. You know, the the very like I want pizza. Or, you know, there's there are aspects of that, but there is a whole sort of culinary sort of evolution that has happened since then that has a lot to do with some of the things that you brought with that type of restaurant. Well, it was true to who I was, and you know, by bringing the kind of hospitality that I learned growing up in St. Louis and pairing it with the really, really good food that you could now start to get in New York. Mm -hmm. It was something different because New Yorkers at that point, the most popular restaurants were the ones that treated you the worst. Yeah, or were the most hard expensive. to get into, really expensive. Yeah, that kind some of, taking advantage aspect. Yeah, that old Woody Allen thing, mm -hmm. uh, Groucho Marx rather. I would yeah. never want to be a member of a club that would have someone like me. I would never want to join a club that would have someone like me as a member. <laughs> And in 1985, when I opened Union Square Cafe, it was right on the heels of the, the nightclub, you know, the Studio 54 thing where they'd make you wait in line behind a red velvet rope and they'd pick and choose who was good enough to get in. Well, guess what? The restaurants of 1984, 85, 86 in New York were often the ones that treated you the same way the nightclubs wow. did, which is you're not good enough to get a table here. You're not good enough to get a good table here. And I just like totally didn't want to do that. Now, by the way, we got some pretty bad reviews at the beginning. Um, I'll never forget this one guy who had a restaurant newsletter. Keep in mind, this is way before the internet. And so you could subscribe to get this guy's restaurant newsletter. His name was Seymour Britschke. And he, he gave us a dot, which is one less than zero stars. And I'll never, I, I still have seared into my, my memory he said, the curly-headed, blazer-clad owner can't keep his hands out of his hair. And thank God he's not the chef, because at least we know his hands have not touched our food. And then he said, and there's a mural in the restaurant that wants to be like Howard Christie's mural at Cafe des Artistes. Instead, it looks like an artist who's on a heroin trip. Um, Just critical. It hurt me so much yes. reading that review that I ended up trying to figure out so I, I actually wrote him a note right after that. And I said, well, on one hand, I got to say thank you for taking an early interest in the restaurant. And number two, I promise you that if you keep your eye, this restaurant's going to actually get a little bit better over time. And then I found out from another restaurateur who I had met in New York that this guy, Seymour Britschke, every single night after dinner, went to a little jazz club and that jazz club was just a few blocks from Union Square Cafe. Mm -hmm. So I went there stalking him. <laughs> and I found a table right next to him. Stupidly, I, I bring all of my, my restaurant industry magazines with my name on the outside, push them on the table just so he could see who he was sitting next to. Why I did that, what aim I had, I have no idea. But he did come back. Uh, probably the subtlety in that. That's I don't know. I was just I was I I I have a competitive streak and I was mad. Um, but it was passive aggressive on my part because I should have just said something to him. Yeah, no words he, were exchanged. <laughs> he he did come back about four months later and he elevated us to one star, which was good. And that that made my hey, you did say it would get better over time, and and it did. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. So how did you go from one to many restaurants? Well, that took a long, long time. And I've, I've got to say that I promised myself I would never open a second restaurant ever. And by the way, I've learned 
many, many times that saying never is a really stupid thing mm-hmm. because I've proven myself a fool every time I've done that. But Like no drive throughs Exactly. The reason that I did not want to have a second restaurant is that I had watched my dad, who had been my, my hero, my childhood hero, I had watched him actually go through two different bankruptcies. Wow. Once when I was probably 14 years old, and I'll just never forget the family meeting in the living room of our home, and uh, there were tears, and man, I was just like my hero, just Heartbroken. got knocked off his pedestal. Mm-hmm. And then the second time he went bankrupt was just soon before he died at the age of 59 um, from cancer. But in each case, my association was that he went bankrupt because he expanded too much. And so I had this sense that growing my business would land in the same spot my dad had been in. I just didn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And you also have to understand that in the early days of the fine dining revolution in this country, people didn't, people didn't know how to distinguish between restaurant chains and fine dining. And so you did not want to be known as a chain. Yeah no matter what you did. So I had two really compelling reasons to not grow. One was didn't want to end up bankrupt. Um, And number two, I wanted people to take Union Square Cafe and my career really, really seriously. And the only way I could imagine doing that was to have just one restaurant. As a matter of fact, so much so that for the first four years of Union Square Cafe, um, so 1985 through 1989, I would actually close the restaurant for two weeks every summer so I could take a vacation, which a bunch of the really fine French restaurants in New York did. And I wanted to be in that list in the New York Times where they would list the restaurant closings for the summer because I thought that would elevate our stature. So I was completely anti-growing. And it truly was not until my dad died in 1990, so that was at that point, Union Square Cafe was about five years old. That uh, what was his sentiment before he died about your success? Well, he had a he had a pretty tough sentiment with it. As a matter yeah. of fact, um, it, it gets really really complicated. But my parents yeah. had been divorced, and he did not come to the opening of Union Square Cafe. Everyone else in my family came. Wow. So I I don't know whether he felt competitive with me, but. When my parents split up, this guy who had been one of my best friends for my whole life, uh, we, we, had a, we had a divergence. Wow. Um, so it, it was rough, but after he died, I got some therapy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned, big surprise is I'm not my dad. Yeah. Another thing I learned is there's a whole lot of businesses in the world that didn't go bankrupt because they grew. Yeah, And I was able to see that, that there was a different thread mm-hmm. that seemed to be consistent amongst his bankruptcies, which is that he had not always surrounded himself with a lot of people who could do stuff better than he could do it. Okay, He almost had this need to surround himself with people that elevated him because he was better than them. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a big flaw. Yeah. And so... I made the choice. I said, you know, I'm liberated right now. Mm-hmm. And if it makes sense to grow, I'll grow. And number two is I'm gonna damn well make sure 
that I'm surrounding myself with people who can do all kinds of things as well or better than I can. Mm -hmm. And that's been a hallmark of, of every team that I've, I've had since that point. But here, here's what happened next. I started seeing that, uh, that I hated when people would leave Union Square Cafe. I felt I would do anything to keep anybody. And yet, because I wasn't growing, the only way you, uh, an aspirational team member could grow would be to leave. They yeah. had to take the off-ramp. They could because, only grow out. Yeah, I wasn't getting a new chef, a new service director, a new wine director, a new general manager. I wasn't going anywhere. So if you really wanted to grow your career, you only had the choice of taking the off-ramp. And I hated that. So stuff was starting to brew inside of me. And then one day I got a, a, uh, a call from a really, really good chef whose food I adored uh, at his restaurant, which had just gone out of business. His name is Tom Calicchio. You may know Tom from oh, yeah. Top Chef Tom yep. Calicchio. Well, mm -hmm. before he was Top Chef Tom Calicchio, he was Chef Tom Calicchio. Yes. And uh, I loved his cooking at, at, at his restaurant Mondrian. Mm -hmm. it, that did go out of business in 1992. Mm -hmm. 19, yeah, about 1992. Because isn't Kraft his, his sort of- That came way, way later. Yeah, yeah. That came way later. Oh, yeah. But Tom, uh, when the restaurant went, we had, we had actually met through Share Our Strength, uh, which is- a national organization that fights childhood hunger. Oh, wow. And um, Tom cooked at an event that, that I was organizing. And, you know, we, we, and then we also cooked together in Aspen for Food and Wine's top 10 new chefs in America. He won it the same year that, that our chef, Michael Romano, won it. So we started to get to know each other. And when his business, his restaurant went out of business, he said, would you ever consider opening a restaurant with me? because I, I love Union Square Cafe and I think we could do something special. And that would almost be like Nolan Ryan saying, can oh, I pitch on your team? Exactly. Um, and you go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do that. So I had, I had at this point come up with three criteria whose, and I had to check every box. This was my way of protecting myself from going down the path my dad had gone down. And I said, okay, I'll open a second restaurant, but it has to satisfy all three of these things. And what I was doing was, was actually creating a fail-safe way never to open a second restaurant. I said, number one, the new restaurant has to be at least as good as Union Square Cafe within whatever niche it is. And I knew that couldn't happen because I absolutely had, and I may still have an imposter uh, complex. I, I always felt Union Square Cafe's success was a fluke and there's no way I could ever do that again. So I said, it, it's, got to, it's got to check that box. Number two, in the process of opening this new restaurant, Union Square Cafe actually has to get better. It can't get worse. Of course, I knew that was impossible because we didn't have a lot of fine dining restaurant groups back then. And, and anytime someone attempted it, the first restaurant would, would lose the focus and yeah. get worse. And the third one was, oh, and by the way, I'll open a second restaurant when in the process of doing so, my balance of life will actually improve, not get worse. Of course, I knew that was impossible too. So I had these three criteria to prevent me from ever failing like I'd seen my dad do. Tom comes along, persuades me to open a restaurant together, which would become Gramercy Tavern. Mm -hmm. And I kind of turned my back on all three of my criteria. And within about a month of Gramercy Tavern opening, I knew I'd failed at all three.
Wow. As a matter of fact, the day Gramercy Tavern opened, the restaurant was the feature of a cover story in New York Magazine. And the cover simply, the day we opened, it had four gold stars with a pack of our matches. And it said, the next great restaurant, question mark, which of course put a big target on our backs because New Yorkers were all too happy to answer the question. Restaurant critics were all too happy to answer the question. And it was a disaster because it wasn't as good as Union Square Cafe right out of the gate. Union Square Cafe definitely got worse. As a matter of fact, that year in the Zagat survey, for the first time ever, Union Square Cafe dropped a notch all the way from number two to number three in, in the sense of wow. New York's favorite restaurants. And, and my life was, was a mess. And, and um, so I said, you fool, you did exactly what you said you weren't gonna do. And I really had to, you know, I had to get it together. Um, we did, I kind of forget how we did. We had a lot of, of ups and downs. There was one really important day mm -hmm. pretty soon after Gramercy Tavern opened. It killed me when, when Union Square Cafe's guests would go to Gramercy Tavern and not love it as much as they loved Union Square Cafe. Mm -hmm. It also killed me when a first time guest at Gramercy Tavern would then, who liked it, would then go to Union Square Cafe and not like Union Square Cafe. I was trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. Instead of saying, you fool, the reason to do a second restaurant is to give people a choice. You're not gonna make everybody happy at every single place. And I was calling on- These are great lessons. I was calling on all these old, you know, gifts of mine about making people happy and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't make the critics happy. Couldn't make a lot of our guests happy. But one day there was this turning point at Gramercy Tavern, a Union Square Cafe regular um, was hosting a business lunch. And she, I think there were probably six of them at the table. And she comes up to me at the end of her lunch, furious. And she said, this would never have happened at Union Square Cafe. And I go, what, 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 what happened? And she goes, well, it started with the salmon, okay? You know at Union Square Cafe that I only order my salmon rare. That's exactly how I ordered it today and it came well done. And I said, oh my gosh, that must have been a mistake in the kitchen. She said, no, it's way worse than that. I said, well, what happened? And she said, this, and she holds up a coat check ticket. It turned out that she had she said at Union Square Cafe, they, the server who took my order would know that I ordered it rare, would have seen that it came well done, would have come up to me discreetly while no one else at the table was looking and taking it away. They would have brought me a cup of soup to tide me over while they were cooking a new salmon. The original salmon would never have been on the bill. They would have taken it off the bill. They probably would have even comped my lunch with whatever I did. But you know what your guys did? No one paid attention. I picked at that salmon because I didn't want to annoy my guests. I just wanted to entertain for lunch. And instead, your manager, she points to the guy who was our general manager, who I had made a partner, gave me a coat check ticket and said, the rest of your salmon will be waiting for you in a bag in the coat check room left it on the bill. She said, I cannot believe you did this. So I was furious because wow. I hadn't 
I was out of control. I was out of control. I was running back and forth between these two restaurants. They were only four blocks apart. That was part of my plan is that I could be everywhere at all times. But it seemed that wherever I was, something bad was happening at the place where I wasn't. Mm. And that was the point when I said to myself, the same thing we ended up teaching our kids when they were very young, use your words. I learned that as a leader, as a manager at Union Square Cafe for those 10 years, it was 10 years where I only had one restaurant, that my leadership style was, if you see Danny doing it, that's what he expects you to do. Mm. But I wasn't, I was teaching people about wine, I was teaching people about food, but I wasn't teaching people, I was even teaching people about service, how to set the table, but I wasn't teaching people how to make choices, mm. how, I, how I went through the process of saying, this is how we do things. That not, not this is what we do, but this is how and why we do things. I wasn't doing that. So I had an all staff meeting at Gramercy Tavern two days after this, because I was so mad. And that was the day that I said, number one, from this moment on, you need to understand that hospitality is our name. The way we make people feel is, is why people will either love this restaurant or not, mm-hmm. over and beyond the food, how we make them feel. And I expect you to lead with generosity. I expect that you believe that you're never gonna put us out of business by being generous to people. Of being worried that that guest was gonna do us out of a half of a piece of salmon. Because the manager said to me, well, how bad could it have been if she ate half of it? Half, of course we have to charge her. What if she gets away with that? I said, that does not ever carry anymore. And that was the day at that That's meeting, a change in values, right? It's a change in values. And that was the day that I coined the, for the first time the expression enlightened hospitality. And I told our staff, I said, from this point on, you need to understand that we have the exact same five stakeholders as every other restaurant, every other business on earth. Mm-hmm. But we get to choose how we're going to prioritize them. And every time you make a choice, you have to ask yourself, was this a good thing for our staff? Because that's our first customer. Was it a good thing for our guest? Because that's our second customer. Was it a good thing for the community in which we do business? Was it a good thing for our suppliers? And And then fifth, was it a good thing for our investors? And that's when I coined the notion of this virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality that of course we want to make money. But in a virtuous cycle, one good thing keeps leading to something better. So if you really want to make money, the input should not be the investor. That should be, that should be the outcome. Mm. And if you really want to have happy customers, they should not be the first. You should start by, the input should be your team. Your team has to feel great coming to work. And when your team feels great coming to work and they're on each other's side, mm. doing great things for each other, the odds of them doing amazing thing for your customers grow exponentially. And so I started to use my words. I started to tell people what I expected in terms of how they would make choices. And what I didn't understand was that that would be the beginning of a real turning point in the business. I've started to understand completely this, this recipe. I, I told the team, I said, your job when you come to work is to get 100 on your test. And here's how you do it. The most points you get for how good your performance is, i.e. how good is the food, is the temperature right, in the re- all the technical things that lead to performance, the most points you can get is 49. 
that leaves 51 points for how you made someone feel. Mm. Keep in mind, everybody, you want 100 on your test. A 49 is a failing grade. You can do everything perfectly, and in the absence of how you make people feel, that is a fail. That's a 49. On the other hand, you can make people feel great, but if the food sucks and it takes too long and it's too cold in the restaurant and, and you don't get people their coat back on time, you get a 51, that's a failing grade too. So I started to come up with, with ways of telling people how I expected them to make choices. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that we started to get really good. And I started watching the Zagat survey because it was the only... This is the measurable. It was the only annual report card we got. Again, we still didn't have the internet. This was 1994, um, 1995. And, and so we would wait every, every autumn, the Zagat survey would come out and they would ask you know, 20,000 New Yorkers, what, how, you can rate every restaurant you've been to in the last year for food to corn service, zero through three, we're gonna, we're gonna average it out and that'll be your score for food to corn service. And we're also gonna ask you, what are your five favorite restaurants in the city? And ever since I started using my words, Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe started duking it out for being wow. New York's favorite restaurant. Union Square had it four straight years then Gramercy Tavern knocked off Union Square Cafe. Union Square was two. Then Union Square got it back. And then I coined a new expression called sibling revelry, which is your job is to be competitive with, with each other. Sibling rivalry is like yeah. the oldest human dynamic mm -hmm. going back to Cain and Abel. Yes. But, but what if you actually love each other while you're competing and teach each other? And then that led to, you know, four years later, opening 11 Madison Park and Tabla. Then my world was upside down again, going from two to four restaurants. But once again, I now had a way, I had language. And I think I had, lang I, I believe that language is the mortar between the bricks of culture. Ah, oh, that's so good. It's truly how you can, you can scale culture by having a shorthanded way to not only tell people what you expect, but by virtue of, of that common language, you actually also do a second really powerful thing, which is you, you let people understand that they belong. Mm -hmm. So if you think about any culture, your family, right? There are nicknames. It's a shorthanded way that your family not only you know, communicates with each other, but you belong in yes. that family. Fraternities, sororities, religions, they all have, they all have uh, sports teams. They all have common language. And that language actually fosters the ability to scale the culture. Um, and so now we are kind of off to the races because, and I don't know whether this was a good thing or bad thing, but when you start to have all of a sudden four restaurants, you have lots and lots of people who want to grow. Mm. And you have to give them a place to grow. Yeah. Because you can't, you know, the thing I kept the lid on the container for 10 years with one restaurant, but once you pull the lid off that, you gotta, you gotta keep growing. So now all of a sudden, in addition to Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, 11 Madison Park, and Tabla, then I decided I'm gonna do barbecue and jazz because this time I just wanna have a joint. And I learned once again that having a joint was a lot harder in a lot of ways than having a three-star restaurant. Mm -hmm. Why? Because barbecue, is something about which everybody has an opinion. 
Mm-hmm. So if you that's if, very true. If you went to Union Square Cafe, if you went to Eleven Madison Park, we may have served you a dish that you've never had anywhere before. But if you go to Blue Smoke, you go, you know, that barbecue sauce is good, but my mom's is better, or that macaroni and cheese is good, but the one my grandmother made was a lot better. Your pecan pie was good, but the one my cousin makes is a lot better. Every single thing we served there was something about which people had a deep emotional connection, which is part of what was special about it. But we finally said, you know what? We just want to be your second favorite version of everything we do here because <laughs> we'll never be as good as mom or grandma. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful to say. I think the thing that you just articulated is so awesome is you, may, you have to make a place for people, right? It, for them to grow if you're going to really build the team and it's it's clear values is a big a, a big part of what drives you but you're like i'm gonna lose great people that i've invested in if i don't create space for them right and create growth areas for them so that's that's really incredible the other thing that i thought was really awesome is holding that that it's a healthy tension of how you made them feel versus executing you know really well on on the the fundamentals and the virtuous cycle that is leading your company. If you're making space for people and you are a value-centric organization, you really do have a recipe for growth. You have a recipe, a recipe to do something amazing. And I, I love the 5149. I had this, I had this uh, same thing. I mean, the way that I would lead in other marketing organizations is I was like, it's 90% scorecard and 10% how you got there. And I learned that the only way to really get people, and still learning, I don't want to say learned, still learning, is that, you know, I love the 5149. I've been at like 6040, you know? But I do think that who you have at the finish line with you when you finish a project or a goal or a milestone or something like that matters way more than just the accomplishment, right? It's who you have with you at the finish line. And that, that's the thing that I think is really awesome about how you've, you've, you've really designed a way and sharing it is awesome. The way that you come on podcasts and write books and all these kinds of things to share the lessons about how people cannot have to go through the exact same thing, but if they can listen and pay attention and they can instill their passion while at the same time recognizing that it's about how they make other people feel that's important, it just, it really enriches everyone's life. It's truly, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, it's truly about the journey. And, you know, I, I will share that it was never my goal to have a four-star restaurant. We got one with 11 Madison Park, and that's when I stopped loving that journey because I think that perfection doesn't exist, and I think it's a fool's errand, and I think it's a recipe to be very, very unhappy. On the other hand, what, and I'm bringing this up because the way the New York Times gives stars, one means good, two means very good, three means excellent, and four means extraordinary. Now, of course you would like someone to say your work is extraordinary, but I'm really, really comfortable. And in fact, I'm motivated by the journey of excellence. I'm not motivated by the journey of extraordinary or perfection. What's great about the journey of excellence is that it's all about the journey. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Every day is an opportunity with your team to do two things. Honor the work you did together yesterday, flawed though it may have been, and agree on two or three things that we could do together a little bit better today. If you do both of those things every single day, you actually feel good. Your humanity means you're making mistakes, but you're also striving to do it a little bit better. And that means it is a journey. And 
that is truly what motivates me with, with all of our places to this day. And on the other hand, when I, when I see people on their back heels, it, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I aspire to be a little bit better tomorrow than we were yesterday. Mm-hmm. I don't like just saying, ah, well, that, that was yesterday, we'll see what happens today. Uh-uh. I'm all for honoring, we, we did some things well yesterday, even though we made mistakes. And I can say that every day I've ever woken up in my life, I can say that. We did some things well yesterday and we made some mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I can also say every single day of my life, there's three or four things we could do a little bit better. And if that's instilled in everybody, it's a healthy balance mm-hmm. and it actually feels good to be on that journey together. Um, it doesn't feel great to, to be trying to be perfect because life's not perfect. It, nothing's perfect and by the way, no one's favorite restaurant is a perfect restaurant. Yeah. It's it, the imperfections of what makes it great. Your favorite restaurant is the restaurant that loves you the most. Mm-hmm. End of story. That's so true. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about Shake Shack, you know? Because I think that, uh, you know, you've got these, as a group, you've got these very cool concepts that you, you've been able to execute on. And I just think it would be really awesome to talk about the thing that's scaled you know, and how, how you did that and, and how that came about and some of the lessons you've learned along the way there. Sure, well, Shake Shack was the very first time that we ever did anything for a second time. There was one of, ever, it was like, yeah, we were writing a lot of hardcover novels, but we never put anything into paperback. And, um, and Shake Shack was, you know, probably one of the best accidents I've ever had in my life. And what happened with, with Shake Shack is that when, when we opened 11 Madison Park in Tabla, which had these beautiful windows overlooking Madison Square Park, the, the problem was Madison Square Park was kind of a disaster. It had fallen into complete disrepair over many, many years. It had been one of the most beautiful parks in the city back at the turn of the century. That is the turn of the 1800s becoming the 1900s. And then probably right, uh, you know, in the 1940s, it just became a disaster. It took its name uh, because the original Madison Square Garden was on Madison Square Park. And I had read this book called The Alienist by Caleb Carr. It's a great mystery. And it all took place right in this neighborhood. And it gave me the idea of, well, what if, what if we could bring this park back to the, you know, the same measure of of, I don't know, beauty and, mm-hmm. and societal impact that it had a hundred years before. And this was about 1997 I started. So now I'm on the cusp of the next, of the next century. And, and I said, but in order to do that, we've got to invest in the park. So even before signing my lease with, with our landlord, which was MetLife Insurance, they owned the building, I said, will you guys, before we even talk about terms on the lease, will you join me? Will you commit to joining me in trying to restore Madison Square Park? And they said, sure, but it'll never work because every time we've tried to do this with the city, the city runs out of money and they run the other way. And I said, look, I'll take the lead with the city, but I need you to help take the lead financially. Because it was, we determined it was gonna take $11 million to restore the park back to its former glory. Mm-hmm make it safe, make it beautiful, repave it. Um, and, and part of the vision was that we would have art in the park because 
I knew from Union Square Park, where we had been for all those years, that you got to give people a reason to use the park. We had a green market, a farmer's market at Union Square, but Madison Square Park didn't lay out well for, you know, there wasn't a big plaza, but there was all this great 19th century sculpture throughout the park. And I said, what if, what if we turned the park into a contemporary sculpture park as well to give people a reason to use it? Plant, plant gardens, make a nice children's playground, a dog run for people. So we succeeded at, at raising the money from everyone around the park, five or six different businesses uh, joined in. And the goal was to have one day food in the park so that people could really enjoy using that as well. So to make a long story short, we get the restaurants open. The parks department says, you can open a food place here, but they changed their tune because when we did the deal with the parks department originally, they said that the rent that the food pays is gonna go back into the park. And they changed their tune saying, nope, any income from, if you guys do any kind of food here whatsoever, any income is gonna to go to the general city coffers. It's not gonna go back into the park. So we said, all right, great, we won't do food. So a couple of years go by, we did get the art program started. Mm -hmm. And in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2001, working with the Public Art Fund, we brought in a sculptor from Thailand who had this wacky idea that he was gonna, his piece of art in the summer of 2001, leading up to 9-11, of course, but his sculpture was going to be called I Love Taxi. Go figure, he had four taxi cabs up on stilts and he designed a hot dog cart to look like, a tax, like his taxi art. And the problem was he needed someone to operate his hot dog cart. Mm -hmm. I said, well, we'll do it. And my partners looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, what the hell would you, well, how would we do a hot dog cart? And I said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about hospitality and I'm tired of people saying that hospitality only works in fancy restaurants. I want to see if we can take something as mundane as a hot dog cart and make it the best, most popular hot dog cart anywhere. And I want to put to work the tenets of enlightened hospitality. And they go, what, what are you talking about? And I said, here's the thing. Let's take all of our out of season coat checkers who have to wait till the weather gets cold to have their job and let's let them run the hot dog cart so they can have a job all summer. Number two, I want to do Chicago-style hot dogs. I'd spent a lot of time living in Chicago, and I loved them. But the other cool thing is they've got eight classic toppings. And I said, wouldn't that be fun if we could get to know all of the customers at the hot dog cart and remember, oh, that's the guy that likes everything except mustard, and that's the woman that likes everything except neon pickle relish. That's the person that likes everything except sport peppers. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? So we get this hot dog cart up and going as part of his piece of art. The artist's vision was kind of wacky. He said, I'm making a political statement because everyone in the world has either been able to afford being driven in a taxi or had to be the guy driving it. And everyone else in the world could either afford to buy a hot dog or had to be the guy selling it. So that's, that was what he did. We operated the hot dog cart. We were cooking these hot dogs in a very gourmet style up in the private dining room of 11 Madison Park and then wheeling them over. We made homemade potato chips, beet stained potato chips, lemon verbena, iced tea. Okay, so 
we'd have 100 people waiting in line at this hot dog cart every day. We were losing money because we had four people. There's a reason hot dog carts don't have four people working it. Mm -hmm. But the hot dog cart gets covered by ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN. The New York Times actually reviews it. And 9-11 happens. The art goes down. It's, now it's the summer of 2002. And the community, New York was pretty depressed, both mm -hmm. economically and just emotionally. This, the, the neighborhood said, can you just, even though the art's gone, can you bring back the hot dog cart? So we stripped off his art from the hot dog cart, same exact product, brought it back in 2002, did the same thing in 2003. 2003, I came up with a great idea and I said, this year we're gonna donate all of our profits to Madison Square Park Conservancy, which was real easy because we had been losing money every yeah, year. Yeah. Somehow we made 7,500 bucks that year. 2004, we were successful at persuading the city to allow us to have a kiosk in Madison Square Park I just read this book by Billy Shore called The Cathedral Within about creating community wealth. And I said, what if, what, if, what if this kiosk could become a community wealth venture? And so I talked to my mom and I said, would you join me philanthropically in contributing this kiosk to the park so the park can become the landlord, we'll own the business, no idea if it'll work, if it'll do well or not, but if the park owns it, the park can then generate income from it. Mm -hmm. We had a new mayor at this point, Mayor Bloomberg, a new parks commissioner, Adrian Benepe, and they agreed that 100% of, of the rent would go into Madison Square Park. I said, That's so fantastic. what if this thing, what if this kiosk could actually keep the park safe because it'll be populated morning, noon, and night and what if it could actually create a revenue stream? And so I scribbled, literally within like 10 minutes, I scribbled out a menu in pencil, um, came up with five really bad names, really bad names. I still have that menu framed right now. 90% of what I scribbled out is on the menu at Shake Shack. Um, I had names like Custard's First Stand, um, Dog Run, Park Paradise, Madison Mixer. And somehow the name Shake Shack occurred to me. And I had a couple of arguments with a couple of my partners who preferred some other name, but I stuck to my guns, mm -hmm. called it Shake Shack. We had the thing built modularly in New Jersey. And one day it was, it was in the park, completely built. Wow. It was almost like the house of the mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz. Nothing to on. something. Nothing to something. And what I can tell you is that we had no idea this was gonna become a successful business, never mind a chain, never mind a public company, never mind in 18 countries around the world. But I will say that to this day, the original Shake Shack in Madison Square Park generates close to a million dollars in revenue for that park in rent. That's amazing. So it was, you wanna talk about a win? I, I would love to repeat that accident some other way, some yeah. other time, but it all started by thinking about enlightened hospitality. Yeah. Can we take care of our team? Can we offer hospitality to our guests? Can we take care of our community? Can we take care of our suppliers? It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. And now it's 400 plus locations yeah. across the US and beyond, yeah? Well, in the US, there's something like 
250 and and then internationally there's another 150 or so it's amazing and growing it's amazing and you can definitely feel the pulse of you know your handiwork and your signature still still alive there in some capacity when we go it's a it's a wonderful wonderful thing it's a wonderful thing i and i appreciate all that you've brought to us but i I'd sharing your story using your words in such a meaningful way it's so awesome to sit and chat with you i do have some rapid fire questions for you you ready? I'm ready. All right. Uh, what's your favorite region for food? Italy. Okay. I, I wish I could come up with a <laughs> I knew that answer. was going to be, I was going to say Rome. Uh, what's I, don't, your, I just don't know how to get a bad meal there. I mean, it's this is amazing. I'm ready to go back with all of the preparedness you've given me. Well, what's one food dish that uh, if you had to pick one for the rest of your life that you would eat, what, what would it be? Oh, it'd be sausage and mushroom pizza. Okay. Sausage and mushroom and I'll, pizza. I'll try almost any style too. Detroit. Neapolitan, Roman, New York, Chicago. I love what pizza says about where you are. Everybody yes. seems to have their own style of pizza, but sausage and mushroom is my go-to. That's the thing. What's your biggest passion outside of work? My family. We have four awesome kids. I've got an awesome wife, and this is not a rapid answer, but big, big learning for me for all the years, especially early in my career, where everybody says, can you find balance in your life? And it was always, can you find a work-life balance? And I couldn't because work was never getting enough of me and home was never getting enough of me. Mm -hmm. And somebody, I wish I could tell you who it was, gave me the best piece of advice. And they said, you know, work-life balance is like trying to find equilibrium on a seesaw with two people. It just, you can do it for a second, but then it, it, it's not gonna work. The real thing you wanna try to do, and this, this helps me a lot, is to realize that the, the real balance comes between how you're taking care of your body, your mind, your heart, and your spirit. Mm. And, and so when I'm out of balance right now, it's not where I am, work or home. It's either because I didn't take good enough care of my body or I didn't take good enough care of my mind, either learning more stuff or, or getting stuff off my mind, or I didn't take enough care of my need to give and receive love, my heart, and my spirit. And I think spirituality is a uniquely human thing, which is mm -hmm. this sense of wonder about things that are not always knowable. So one of the things that I love doing, that I have a lot of passion about when I'm not at work, is getting exercise in nature with someone from my family or someone mm -hmm. who I love, period, because then I'm taking care of almost everything. It's like yeah. the best multitask yeah. in the world. I get lots of spirituality from nature. I get to deepen my love, I get to take care of my body, and I either get stuff off my mind or I learn stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, what's next for Danny Meyer? Well, I recently named one of my colleagues CEO. I wanted to give myself the freedom to do more of what uniquely I can do and to give up an area where to someone who can do some of the stuff a lot better. He's a way better manager than I ever was. Mm. It's, it's gotten to be a pretty big company. And so now I'm spending more of my time with chefs in our company trying to make the food better. We have an investment uh, business called Enlightened Hospitality Investments where wow. we recognize that we don't have all the best ideas in the world, but, but what if we could recognize those entrepreneurs who did come up with great ideas, who lead with the kind of culture, whatever they happen to call it, but, but lead with the culture that we call Enlightened Hospitality, where it's an employee-first culture. And so we have raised now two funds, and 
We're providing strategic growth equity for, at this point, 18 different businesses of people who came up with an idea I wish I had come up with, mm -hmm. who lead in a way that I would hire in a second if I needed that person. Mm -hmm. And so we're having fun doing that too. It sounds like a lot of fun. I want to say how much of an honor it was to sit and chat with you. You've inspired me today. I think for people to hear not only your story, but your disposition, how you look at life, to understand how value-centric you are. And these are, these are the types of things that we need as leaders and we need as entrepreneurs as we lead businesses. We need to instill these things. And I, I just think just how special it was to hear that. And it, it means a lot that you came out here to have the conversation with me. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Any last words you want to leave us with? Well, I think I'll leave with just one thought, which is that there's a great YouTube that I saw recently, the women's basketball coach at Duke, and she's talking, she's giving a pep talk to her team. And it's about the notion of hard, what's hard. And she said, I'll, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but it never gets easy. As a matter of fact, when you get better, it only gets harder because you're constantly doing things that you're incompetent at. If, if you're really driven to climb a higher mountain than you've ever climbed before, you're incompetent. You haven't done that before. Mm. So it's a fallacy to think that hard work is gonna make life easier. Hard work only leads to harder things. Mm. So you gotta want that. Gotta you get really familiar get, with hard. You gotta get familiar with hard and love it. And you gotta get familiar with feeling incompetent and to say that the only way you get to grow is to be uncomfortable. But, but each time you break through that and you find at least momentary comfort and pride mm -hmm. and you get to bring a team with you while you're doing that, that's what it's all about. And then you get to do it all over again. That's so good. So good. Danny, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, or for more information on how we can help you run and grow a better business, see the show notes of this episode.